to Luke chapter 11 as we continue in this gospel. Luke chapter 11. Last week we saw Jesus rebuking the people of Israel because they had so many signs right in front of them and yet they refused to believe and Jesus um, just told them, the men of Nineveh will stand up on the last day and condemn you and the queen of the south will as well. That there's a responsibility that comes with being recipients of grace. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus continue to press his charge against his people, specifically in regards to the uh, religious leaders. Uh, This morning, looking at Jesus' response to a Pharisee. So let's begin in verse 37, and we'll read through verse 44. Let's pick it up at verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went, went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first, first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and ruined every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Phil Riken, in his commentary, asked this question, what is the biggest danger the church faces in the 21st century? Is it secular hostility to biblical truth? The spread of Islam and other false religions? Is it the doctrinal errors of post-evangelical theology? These are all serious dangers, <coughs> but judging from what Jesus said in the Gospels, the gravest danger may come from theologically informed, religiously active, moral and conservative people whose hearts are far from God. Nothing is deadlier to the life of true godliness than spiritual hypocrisy. If you're aware of uh, the Gospels, you've read them through, you know the things that Jesus said and taught you, you'll recognize that there was nothing that Jesus faced in his ministry on earth that was more offensive to him than the religion of the leaders of Israel. Now we have to understand, there was a great deal taking place in the world of Jesus' day things that were worthy of his anger and his offense. Jesus, um, of course, was not in the connected age. He didn't have all the, uh, the news channels we have and the ways that we have of knowing what's going on in the world, but he was God. He knew this world. And he understood perfectly the gross sexual perversion that was taking place in all the pagan nations surrounding Israel. He knew the incredible arrogance and pride of the Roman Empire. He knew of the awful injustices that were daily being perpetrated against the poor all over the world. There was no shortage of things in this world that were deserving of Jesus' anger. And yet in the gospel accounts, We don't read of Jesus denouncing 
anything as robustly and continually as the religion of the Jewish religious leaders. He was incensed with their lives and their actions. The question that our text, in a sense, deals with this morning is, why didn't the Jewish leaders repent and believe? We didn't read the verses right before our text, but it's about a light, a light that's shining. And Jesus, of course, is that light, and yet he was shining right in front of these people, and they didn't see it. Why, why not? What kept them from seeing it? What, what kept them from believing the miracles that they were watching or hearing? What kept them from accepting the truth of what he said? They were talking face to face with the Messiah of God, and they missed him. You see? What great evil is to blame for their inability to see Jesus? And the answer is the evil of external morality and religion. The evil of their morality and their religion was killing them. You see, of all the lost people in the world, the most lost people are the moral people, the religious people. And of all the lost moral and religious people, the most lost are those who are the closest to the true religion. These Jewish leaders had the, the Word of God. They had the Old Testament. They had all the ceremonies and sacrifices that God had prescribed. They, they were given the revelation of the one true God. And yet of all the people in the world, these were the most dead in, the sin, in their sin, the most blind to the truth of Christ, the most beyond the reach of the gospel, the most in, bound for hell. People like this man, this earnest, sincere, committed, very religious, and utterly lost Pharisee. We're going to first look at the offense that Christ committed in their eyes, and then the offense that they were committing in Christ's eyes. So the offense and then the offensiveness. The story begins very innocently. If you've noticed in verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. The, and the, the Greek word that they use for dine tells us that he invited Jesus over for lunch, the midday meal. And so Jesus went in and reclined at the table. Undoubtedly, this, this Pharisee had also invited some of his friends. We're going to hear from one of his lawyer friends in verse 45, who says, Lord, when you talk like this, you're offending us too. And I would think quickly regretted that he spoke up. So there's a small group that's gathered, uh, this man's friends and, and Jesus, they're there. And it seems to be an innocent invitation. We don't read of him seeking to trap Jesus. We'll read about that in various places. The, the scribes came seeking to trap him and asked him some questions. We don't read that here. This man seems to be um, well-intentioned. Seems to be a sincere man. He's a Pharisee. That's true. The word means set apart. Doesn't mean he's a devil. It just means he, he is part of a sect that took the holiness of God very seriously, took the law of God very seriously, and were committed to doing what the Bible said. 
So they were very careful to do everything that, that God had written in his word and also all the rules that various teachers throughout the centuries had added to God's word to protect people from actually breaking the word itself. So they know the rules and they're very serious about the rules and that's where the problem starts Verse 38, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Boys and girls, before you say, I know exactly what that's like. (laughs) Well, maybe, but not quite. You say, because the washing that is referred to here is not, um, has nothing to do with personal hygiene. It has everything to do with religious hygiene. So Jesus walks into this man's house, immediately violates a rule, and not just any rule, but a really, really important rule. He fails to wash his hands ceremonially before the meal. You see, if you remember in the Old Testament, there were many rules dealing with ceremonial cleanliness. God gave Israel these rules because he wanted them to get a sense of the fact that sin stains us. Sin makes us dirty, defiled, polluted That's what sin does. And that if we're to come into the presence of God, we need to be washed. And so there were various religious uh, uh, ceremonial practices to be ceremonial cleansed before you went into the temple, to the the tabernacle to worship. There, There were things that were required by God to explain the reality of sin, the staining nature of it, and the necessity for being cleansed. Well, to those rules that God had given, the rabbis added many more. One of them had to do with washing your hands before a meal. You see, the idea was that it would be defiling to have a meal with a Gentile. So if you extrapolate that, well, then it would be defiling. Imagine if you had just been out doing your business that morning and you had been in the marketplace, you had brushed up against a Gentile, maybe you had touched a sinful woman, maybe you had um, come across someone who had a disease of some sort. You, You really didn't know who you might have touched that morning. And so before you had your meal, you would wash your hands ceremonially. Because otherwise, it was almost like you're eating with a Gentile or eating with the, the sinful woman. And you had to do it in a very specific way. It was prescribed. You had to let the water run from the fingertips down to the wrist and then off and needed to do that twice. You see, if you ran it the other way, it's possible that some of the water would actually take some of the contagion uh, just above and bring that down, and your hand would still be ceremonially unclean. So there were very specific rules given to this, but the most important thing to know is that it was a cardinal rule. This is Phariseeism 101. They always, always, always wash their hands ceremonially before a meal. Geldenheis writes, the rabbis taught that to fail to do this was equal to the sin of fornication. And to eat a meal with unclean hands was akin to eating excrement. That's the rabbis. So, we understand a little bit. When Luke tells us the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash his hands before the meal. He was dumbfounded. Utterly speechless. Flabbergasted. Jesus has done that which simply cannot, must not be done. 
he has violated the cardinal rule of moral eating. And his failure has a defiling effect on everyone there, you see, because they share dishes. So Jesus is going to touch a dish and he'll pass it on to the guy next to him and he's going to pass it on with these undefiled, with these, with these uh, defiled hands, unclean hands. He's bringing his uncleanliness right into their lap. I mean, who knows whom Jesus touched that day? He had a habit of getting way too close to the wrong people. So how did this happen? Did Jesus just forget do you think Jesus just forgot? <laughs> no, Jesus doesn't forget. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's creating an opportunity to shine the light of truth into this man's life of lies. And so he responds to this Pharisee with, with shocking truth, exposing this man, the, the awful reality of his dead religion. And he, he's striving to show this man just how offensive he actually is before the living God. So what are the things that Jesus points to? What are the signs of the religion that he abhors? Well, the, the one fatal flaw that Jesus points to is that this man is more concerned with outward appearance than inward godliness. The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are more concerned with outward appearance, outward exercises than inward godliness. Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Maybe he picked up a plate as they were sitting by the, as they were reclining by the table, and he, and he holds it up and says, you guys are all about washing the bottom of the plate, but you never deal with the top of it. Boys and girls, imagine doing dishes that way. Imagine washing the bottom of the plate after the meal, and you gather all the plates together. You put them by the sink, and you carefully, carefully wash the bottom of the plate, and you don't even touch the top of the plate where all the food scraps are, and then you stack them up, and you put them in the cupboard. Would you want to eat off that plate the next morning? No, you wouldn't. Nobody would. Why would you do such a thing? I mean, it just, it's immediately, obviously, utterly foolish. And Jesus says, that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing. And, of course, that's what many professing Christians have done and do. It's easy to focus on the external things, right? You, and, so you pray, you go to church, you refrain from certain sins, maybe read your Bible, Convinced that you're, um, you're, you're a true Christian because you do these things, but ignoring the essential things, not paying attention to the heart. That's what's going on here. That's why Jesus is so frustrated and angry. Inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. Inside, they have all the evidences of a fallen human heart because in the Bible, greed is one of the primary evidences. Greed is that covetousness, that always wanting, wanting, wanting. You live to get, you live to have, you live to consume. You're always looking for uh, your advantage. That's why little kids, you don't have to teach them how to look for the biggest piece of cake. They're doing the arithmetic way before they know about numbers. Why? It's a human heart. They, they're looking for their advantage. Ezekiel 33, 31, their heart is set on their gain. That's the human heart. And so Jesus looks at this man, and, and of course, he sees the same thing when he looks into the heart of any natural-born sinner. This is what the flesh looks like. It's always hungry. It's always consuming, always getting, grabbing, 
Jesus says inside, you guys are full of this greed and this wickedness. Because it's wicked. It's not how we were meant to live. The great sin of this man, the great failure of this Pharisee, the offense is that this man is not paying attention to his heart. He thought that his external righteousness, keeping the rules, that some, somehow that that was all that really mattered. That if he washed his hands before the meal, just get inside this guy's skin, the way he thinks about life and does life, he assumes that when he washed his hands ceremonially before the meal, that he is now eating with the favor of God, regardless of the, of the lustful glance that he gave to the maid as she walked by, regardless of the, the anger and the impatience he just shown to his son an hour ago, regardless of the fact that he's just pulled kind of a shady deal in the marketplace that morning. None of those things are registering. Why not? Well, because that's just how people live. That's just, well, men are like that. There's, it's, it's no big deal. And so, and so men live lustfully, angrily, impatiently, dishonestly, thinking, you see, it's, it's just, nobody's perfect. It's just, just, that's just normal stuff that men do. You don't really need to worry about those things, and yet this man is clueless to the fact that those are the things that God worries about. Those are the things that are dragging him to hell. You fool, Jesus says, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? God made you body and soul. And, and yes, there's these rules. You, you, should, you should observe the laws of God. But if you're, if, you're, if you're not dealing with the things that God is concerned about, the internal reality of your heart, you're lost. You see, false religion fails to deal with what God is looking at, the inside. This is very easy for us to do. You know that, don't you? We can be very accomplished hand washers. We know the external acts of religion. We do them well. But when's the last time we washed our soul? Because you see, too often we make a, a shameful peace with our lust. It's just normal male behavior. We make a shameful peace with our gossip. It's a normal female behavior. A shameful peace with our spiritual sloth. We're just busy people. And with our anger, well, it's been a hard week. And, and our impatience, we're just human. But you see, we need to know that going to church and saying our prayers is intensely offensive to God if we are not facing and confessing and repenting the crimes of our heart. That double life is offensive. It's, it's intensely offensive to God. Peter says, husbands, love your wife and, and deal with her gently for the sake of your prayers. In other words, if you're not going to do that, don't bother talking to the Father. He's offended at you, the audacity that you display that you will mistreat your wife and then trot into the presence of God as though everything is fine. And Jesus doesn't let up. He follows the devastating rebuke with three woes, three realities about these men that confirm their sin and condemn their soul. Three damning evidences of false holiness. First, they major on the minors. They major on the minors. Woe to you, Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. They're big on tithing. 
Something that God has required in the Old Testament, and he was very clear about what was required in the Old Testament, but they go way beyond, you see, those commands, and prided themselves on tithing everything, even the little spices, the mint and the rue and the herb, they're meticulous. Do you know how tiny the seeds of, and some of these spices are? And yet they're carefully picking through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Going to tie that one. They're very careful about this. It's a big deal to them. The material cost, of course, is very small, but the spiritual benefit is very big. You get to feel holy. You get to feel self-righteous because you are really tithing. Not like all these other schmucks out there who are, you know, maybe bringing a little here and a little there. You're serious about these things. You see? How happy the Lord must be with you. And so they're just seeking their righteousness with their practice. Now, people do this with all sorts of things. This isn't just Pharisees' idea. It's still going on, right? People who, who are emphasizing and really laying hold of some particular aspect of morality or practice and, and holding very tightly then to that. Alistair Begg um, talks about a time when he was a young boy on a church outing. Apparently, uh, a, a boat, it was a boat cruise down a nearby river, and he grew up uh, in, in Scotland. And uh, so they're having this nice cruise going down the river, and some of the older, he noticed some of the older men of the church came um, with very red faces muttering about something pertaineth to something or other. And, and uh, then around the corner came the, the source of their great concern, which was a, a lady wearing trousers. And Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 says that the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. So this was the sign of decadence. This is, they were very, very offended by this. And, and, and Begg says, what, what caused me some confusion as a little boy is that some of the men expressing the most concern were wearing kilts. <laughs> but you see, people pick things, don't they? And it's a very important thing. It matters, and they're offended if others aren't uh, giving it the same attention. And so we, we tend to seek our righteousness in some of, of these particular practices. It's very common in West Michigan for people to seek their righteousness in the church they go to. And so to sort of say to themselves, well, I know that I'm not perfect, which is a really bad statement. No one is charging you with being perfect. But I, you know, I, I know my life isn't what it ought to be, but at least I, I go to a good church. I go to a church that doesn't believe in common grace. I go to a church that sings only the Psalms or uses only the King James. I go to a church that has taken a stand on alcohol and worldliness. I, I go to a church that doesn't ordain woman elders. Have you any idea how common that is in West Michigan? People trusting the denomination they belong to or the church that they attend as their righteousness. And it happens right here. You don't think it happens here? People say, I know my life isn't what it ought to be, but at least I go to Harvest Church. It's a good church. That is a good church. And if that's your righteousness, you are lost. Absolutely lost. Because Harvest Church will not be standing there on the day of judgment to cover your sin. You see, Jesus hates 
this talk. Because it's just self-righteousness. It's a refusal to receive the righteousness that God freely gives. The righteousness that Jesus Christ is going to purchase with his own blood. This is, an, this is an, an offense to him. It's still pride. It's a refusal to receive the gift of gospel grace. And, and it, it reveals itself in a refusal to love God and love others. And so it's just rank disobedience. And so Jesus says... You neglect justice and the love of God. You neglect people in need. God spelled out in the Old Testament what justice looked like. It looked like defending the weak, protecting the poor, welcoming the stranger and the alien, helping widows, adopting orphans. In other words, justice looks like caring about the people in need and then actually doing something about it. So that we're not loving just with words, but loving with action. And one of the great evidences of a hypocritical heart is it's a heart that's more concerned than, you see, with religious performance than with people. And so you make a big deal out of the little things and utterly ignore the big things, the things that really deeply matter to God. These men were not expending themselves in any, any meaningful way of doing anything to care for needy people or hurting people. Why not? Because they didn't love those people. And they didn't love God. You neglect the, the love of God. That is the, Jesus touches the core of the crime. You don't love God. Because you see, the essence of true religion is exactly that. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And if you don't love God, you're not known by God. Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. The great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And a failure to do that is a crime. We, you know, we, we treat that like a little sin. You know, I, I know I don't, I don't really love God. And we'll say that easily. Do we have any sense of how awful it is not to love God? In whom there is nothing unlovely? Nothing but things that deserve to be adored and, and worshipped and delighted in? There is nothing, there's no fault in God. And to fail to love God, you see, is, is evidence of a profoundly perverted heart. The evil of our sinful nature is that we love things more than God, and we even love sin more than God. That's the, that's the core evil. And so he rebukes them. And then quickly, two other marks of this hypocrisy. They love reputation, Verse 43, you love the best seat in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces. Here these men are walking, talking lies, and they love to be noticed as religious. And so in the synagogue, there would be seats up front where the, where the teacher would be, right up here on the stage, and, and the, the, the most moral men would, would get to sit up on the stage and look out at the rest of you poor people, you know, just doing the best you can. And they loved to be up on the stage. They loved to be seen. 
They love to be greeted in the marketplaces. We do the same at times, don't we? Have you ever found your heart wanting other people to see you acting religious? Boy, did you hear that prayer that she offered? That was so beautiful. Look at him over there. Every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, what a good man. Did you see what she did? Did you hear what he said? You see it? We just got little ears that are, that are always just scoping for that sort of compliment. I do too. I do too. You see, it's, it's just another manifestation of a wicked and greedy heart. We want applause. We want religion. Talk to me. Give me. Feed me. Feed me. But it's all, it's all wretched wickedness, and it's a, it has a defiling influence. What do you, you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In those days, you would have some cemeteries, but out in places where you didn't have a cemetery, people would bury their loved ones in some appropriate place. But you don't have all these big tombstones, and so people would often use whitewash to, to mark out the boundaries of the grave. And the reason they would do that is because to touch a dead body was defiling in the Old Testament. And so the Jews believed that to walk over a grave would be defiling even if you didn't know it was there. So they would mark it out. Jesus says to these Pharisees, these religious leaders, you guys are the unmarked grave. And everybody you touch is defiled. You're full of deadness and defiling to anyone who comes near, anyone who follows you. Because, you see, this external religion, this false holiness, it's like a cancer. It's a virus, and it spreads with deadly power. It will spread to your children. If you're just mouthing the things of God or you're doing the religious thing, but, but you're not dealing with the reality of your heart, unmarked grave, it's defiling. Your children are watching. It can affect your spouse, husband or wife. It'll affect your, affect your friends at church. It can affect the whole body. And the whole body can sort of get comfortable to playing the game. And we'll all come to church and we wear our nice clothes and we don't really talk about uh, the stuff that's going on underneath because, frankly, those things are, we just don't deal with that. It's a grave. It's a grave. It's full of death and spiritual defilement. That's what Jesus says. So let's wrap up. First, I just want, maybe you've noticed, these are really hard words. Jesus is not out to win friends and influence people. These are piercing, piercing, condemning, stunning words. This man never expected in a million years to hear coming out of the mouth of Jesus what he was hearing. He had invited Jesus as a kind gesture, one religious leader to another religious leader. Maybe he disagreed with Jesus a bit here or there, but he was possibly thinking that if they just sat down over a meal, had a cordial conversation, they could probably find many areas where they were in agreement. Couldn't be more wrong. Like, likely he saw himself and Jesus on the same side, the same team. Just two guys serious about the things of God. And, and so he's going to show how generous he is and invite Jesus, and they're going to have a, a nice talk. And yet Jesus floors him by condemning him publicly, explicitly, in front of his friends in the man's dining room. Now, 
Friends, that man experienced in a very, very small way what thousands and thousands and thousands of people will experience on the day of judgment. Only their experience will be a thousand times worse. Because the Bible says on that last day, there will be many, Jesus says, who assumed that they and Jesus were on the same side, that they were on the same team. And Jesus will publicly, explicitly, and eternally condemn them. Why? For the same reason he condemns this man. He has no understanding of true religion and true holiness. He has embraced and they have embraced a form of godliness that is both powerless and perverse. It's shot through with pride. It's shot through with self-righteousness. It's shot through with what they can do and what they can accomplish. And it's of the devil. And they will go to hell because they don't Love God. Friend, if Jesus had dinner with you this afternoon, what would he say to you? What would he say to you? He knows you. He knows what's in your heart. What would Jesus just say to you? Just you and him around the dinner table. Would he see a love for God? Would he see a love for God's people? A love for those who are in need? Do you, do you care about those things? Do you actually do anything to help anyone in need? I mean, because you want to? Because, because it's on your heart? Are you expending yourself in any way for those who are hurting or, or helpless? God cares about those things. Are you, how are you treating your, your, your wife and your husband? And, and how are you responding to your parents? God cares about those things. What are the attitudes of your heart? Do you love God? What would he say to you today? Let the Spirit talk to you about that. See, what is Jesus looking for? He's looking for honesty. He's looking for humility. He's looking for repentance. A heart that's able to face itself and confess the truth. And then believe by God's grace the promises of the gospel. A heart that says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I want, to, I want to believe and I, and, I, and I want to not trust in my righteousness. I know it's rags. I want to trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I want to believe and receive everything, Jesus, you've done for me. Because, Jesus, I want to love you. And I want to love God. I want to be a changed man. I want to, Jesus is looking for a heart that's, that's able just to be truthful about, about the reality of what's going on inside. And then flees to Jesus. He's not offended when you come with your needs. He delights in it. When you come with your sin and your lostness and your brokenness and your inability to fix yourself, what offends him is when you sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and refuse to face the truth. And you think that somehow God is pleased. He's not. He's not. He's not. What he's looking for is what only he gives, and that's why we pray, Lord Jesus, give me a new heart. A heart that is thankful for the grace and the gift of salvation. A heart that's thankful for things we don't deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my sinful soul. Thank you, Jesus, that you have the power to make me clean and whole. Thank you, Jesus, for all the blessings I have that I don't deserve. The blessing of family and a beautiful day in a church that knows me and still puts up with me and loves me. And Thank you for the gospel that's true. Thank you for everything that's promised. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Let's follow him in it. Amen.
Jesus, these are hard words. But you speak them, Jesus, because it is your heart's desire that we be flushed out of our self-righteousness and our pride, out of our pretensions, and that we, Lord Jesus, deal with the truth. I thank you so much. The gospel does this work. You sent the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, uh, to convict, to reveal the truth to us about ourselves, about who Jesus is and what he can do, and he alone. Father, you know every heart here, and maybe we can hide today, but Lord, our, our hiding is no avail before the throne of God, and, and it will be exposed on the day of judgment. And so Jesus, forgive us for trying. I, oh God, I pray that you would give us the freedom of honesty, first with ourselves, then with those closest to us, the honesty of our own pride, our own self-righteousness, all the ways that we think we're better than the person next to us or across the aisle, all the ways we think we're better than the people who don't go to church. Father, forgive us for our pride. It's offensive to you, and it, it is such a crippling, has such a crippling effect on our mission. It robs us of our joy, and it it keeps us pretending before a world that sees our hypocrisy. And so, Father, we ask that you would forgive us, that you would change us, that we would more and more be a people who can tell the truth because we are resting in the truth of the gospel. So bless us, Lord, to that end. Use your words to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.